invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 6. As we're turning there, I will uh, just want to share a few things from my heart. Some of it is just flowing out of the fact that these times are different and uh, we need to say as much. I think people are coming to church who haven't come before. People are gathering together because some of the churches aren't gathering and we're glad to gather and I'm glad to be here with you. It is always a statement of truth to stand for as we gather. We're, we're standing for Christ. We're standing for truth. We're saying that we believe the Bible is the right path and that we want to follow the Lord Jesus come what may. And uh, the times we're living in are just different. They're, they're different times and yet the pressures of uh, different things in terms of meeting or not have really squeezed out some fruit that was unexpected. I was here on Saturday evening and was grabbing some books and things to uh, finish up for this morning and saw the camera that's there, the live streamers that are watching right now, some in the lower 48, some who are just part of uh, our Anchorage community that um, it's not wise for them to gather, but they gather this way. We get you know over 100 people in different media platforms that Watch, and that's just normal. It's normal to do that now, but it was part of a greater vision that I desired a long time ago to try to get the Word of God out in an open air way. So we're thankful for that. We're thankful to hear the Word, though, gathering together in this way. We've got fellowship groups that happen at the same time with, with groups of tens, twenties, thirties of people getting together and, and just getting together for a community that we feel that we need now like never before. And that's exciting to me. That's a, that's a pastor's um, blessing, even through hardship and, and different twists and turns. But there is something that I want to talk about that is part of the, the fallout of an increasingly secular culture that we live in. It comes through media. I'm not someone who watches certain TV shows uh, on purpose. I haven't watched, I don't think I've watched the Grammy Awards probably for lack of interest more than any other reason. But, uh, but I saw it out of the corner of my eye. I was on a, a daddy-daughter, you know, sort of a spiritual date where you hang out and talk about the Lord and, and do that. And we were in a restaurant and they have screens around with, and they had the Grammy Awards on. I don't remember what night that was, but it was in my peripheral vision. And it looked like scenes from a post-apocalyptic sort of dystopian um, thing where you have, you know, men with feather boas singing and women scantily clad. And it's just grotesque. And it was grimy. And I, I couldn't even look that direction, nor should I have. But it it just is a picture of where our society is trying to mark the new watermark for what's normal. Like this is what is being force fed down our throats as to what the world is saying is normal and it's not normal. We need to come to a place where we can say biblically with God as our witness, that's not normal. Men need to be men and women need to be women and ladies and godly and the women, the women's movement of feminism is saying, respect me, respect me, respect me. And then they do something so disrespectful in, in, that is just really a scar against womanhood to, to parade women in that way. And, and then men need to be those who are respecting and dignified and they're acting in undignified ways and people are celebrating that. And that's part of the, the call of a passage like where we're coming to, where we need to examine our own hearts and to ask our own selves, are we in or are we out? 
because there is no middle ground anymore. It's not going to be easy to straddle the fence anymore. You're in or you're out. It's, it's time to call it for what it is. The marriage bed must be undefiled. Biblical marriage is based on God's word. It's what he's set up. It's what he's designed. Biblical masculinity and singleness is, is a way for being like Christ and being godly. And womanhood should be held high in esteem as biblically represented in all of its beauty and glory. And so it's time for us to say, why do we believe that? And do a bit of a gut check and say, we believe these truths because we are Christians. This message is what a friend of mine in in the office said. It's a, uh, are you saved moment message? This is an, are you saved moment message? This is a, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith message. And I'm keying off of uh, these verses in Matthew chapter six. If you'll look with me at verse 14. Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is going to be kind of an unoutlined message. I'm going to talk through these verses. They really are tacked on to the end of the Lord's six prescribed um, sort of prayer requests that we're supposed to pray. What are, the, what are the petitions we are supposed to pray? Well, there's six of them, and we've gone through them over the last couple of weeks about the, the name of God, the holiness of God. We're praying for God's glory to spread and be hallowed. We're praying for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for daily bread and daily dependence, and we pray that we forgive our debtors, those who've offended, those who've taken something from you. Those who are indebted to you, right? We forgive them because God has first forgiven us as we have been forgiven. And so verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These last two petitions about, Lord, we, we pray for daily forgiveness because we forgive others. And then the last one, lead us not into temptation. Those verses, those petitions Create the context for verses 14 and 15. In other words, if you're in a hard-hearted state and you're not forgiving your debtors, if you're not asking for daily forgiveness, if you have fallen prey to a temptation, lead us not into temptation, the temptation of becoming a grudge holder where you're going to grind against somebody, where you're going to hold something against somebody, Where somebody has, and the wording here in verses 14 and 15 is trespass. Somebody's gone too far. It's a different word than debtor. It's somebody's crossed the line in your life and you've made a decision where you put a stake in the ground and go, no forgiveness for you. Now, I'm not talking about a hard conversation or not that you may or may not be able to have or need to have. I'm saying in your heart, have you let that go? Because what Jesus says here is a very hard statement where he's saying, if you are unwilling to let go offenses that have been done to you, then your heavenly father will not forgive you. That's a hard statement. And it takes hard statements to soften hard hearts. 
And the listeners here around the Sermon on the Mount were sitting in a mixed crowd. You have the disciples who are following Jesus and hanging on every word. You have the skeptics who are the hypocrites who are sitting back and judging everything that he's saying. Those who are trying to use a religion, religious shield to cloak their own sinfulness in terms of works-based religion that's a false religion. They're all sitting there listening and Jesus wants to strip off the band-aid and say, listen, If you don't forgive people, I don't care what spiritual state you think that you're in. I don't care how safe you think you are. If you're not a forgiver, you're not going to be forgiven. That's what Jesus says. Bottom line, it's playing right out of the last two petitions. He's saying, listen, pray like I pray. Pray like this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil or from the evil one. If you're under the satanic delusion that you can remain healthy spiritually while not forgiving people, if you're under the satanic lie that you are safe for heaven, if you're an unforgiving person, that needs to be obliterated in your thinking. To be a Christian is to be a forgiver. To be free, to have spiritual joy in your Christian life is to say, I was done wrong, but I'm letting it go. Based on Jesus Christ, the justice is in the cross. And I was given grace, and so I'm giving grace. Not saying that this precludes a conversation you might need to have, reconciliation, reparations. But I'm saying in terms of your heart, this is not a conditional verse. This is a heart examination verse. In terms of your heart, forgive people. This is a throwdown message. This is a are you saved message. Dig inside. Am I holding on an offense against somebody because I'm going to do some work this morning before the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, let me let it go. The word afe or forgive means let it go. Don't hold on. Don't dig in. Recently, we've been following the storyline of James Coates, the pastor in Edmonton, the Alberta, Canada area, and he's the pastor of Grace Life um, Bible Church, I think, and uh, it's a similar sized church as ours. He's uh, probably 10 years younger than me. He's friends with Nathan Schneider over here, and anyway, he... uh, he and his wife, Aaron, have been on the news, uh, reports about James and him being incarcerated. He was taken away in bonds for gathering um, to worship as a church. He's the senior pastor, so he was the symbol of that gathering. Uh, he was given the option uh, to be released from jail if he promised not to gather or not to preach, and he wouldn't do that. And there was news this week. I don't have the most current news. Forgive me for that. But news of hope that he was going to be released from prison. He's got two kids, two babies at home to be released from prison. One of the uh, charges was dropped. And then one of the charges remains uh, to be tried in court in May. But Lord willing, he's been released or is going to be released um, to stand trial in May. But what struck me, and you can find these things on you know Google search or whatever. But what struck me was a letter that was read at his church that... Um, the associate pastor was reading on his behalf that was very Pauline-like, you know, he's writing from prison and grace and peace, and he wants the church to excel still more. But because of the authenticity of real persecution and writing as the pastor heart-to-heart to the church, 
One of the things he said was that, you know, I want you to grow in love for each other. I want you to remain unified. And he said, I want you to forgive each other offenses that you've been hanging on to. And that stood out to me because that's our text. What really is the litmus test for you being forgiven is whether or not you are a forgiver. And that's the issue. That's what is fundamental to being authentic in church. And we pray for James. He's been in jail since mid-February. And so we're praying that he will be released. He called for prayer for that. And we should be doing that. We don't want to wake up one day and find out that we were not truly Christians at all, right? Matthew 7, what a warning. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's very dangerous to be a hypocrite, to be someone who thinks that you're in and you're really out. Hypocrisy is is a theme through chapter 6, just to get your arms around chapter 6 again by way of review. If you look at um, the verses here in terms of giving and praying and fasting, hypocrisy is the danger in each attribute of religion. Verse 2, if you blow a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and you're doing it in front of people to be praised by others, you've received your reward. The word reward here should be synonymous with heaven. If you get heaven down here on earth, in other words, not real heaven, but, but man's praise, you're trading that for heaven in eternity. If you're living as a religious hypocrite, a play actor, you're trading heaven for now. You don't have the assurance of your salvation if you're a faker. Verse 5, if you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. It's all about motive. But we pray in secret um, because if you're doing it to be seen by others, verse 5, truly I say to you, they have their reward. You see this again in verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, those who are faking, they, dis, they um, disfigure their faces. Truly, I say to you, they're, they're to be seen by others. They're fasting to be seen by others. Oh, I'm so hungry for the Lord. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Reward here is either you get heaven or you don't get heaven. You're either in or you're out. You're either receiving man's praise as an, a reward or you will receive the reward of heaven. If you look back at verse six, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the assurance of your salvation. It's the assurance of your salvation. If you have a real genuine Christian life, that's the hidden relationship of the heart. That's real. If you're giving out of a heart of worship, that's real. If you're even fasting out of a heart for God, that's real, and that's heaven's reward, even in your own heart and in your own life. Putting on a good face at church doesn't work anymore. This is calling hypocrisies bluff, and this is that rubber meets the road time in our culture. As I mentioned before, examine yourselves. See if you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. This is not just a sobering discipline. This is a healthy discipline for you to do now. Where are you as things are heating up? 
Where are you spiritually? Men, women, boys, girls, children, listen. Are you a true believer? That's what this is talking about. This is the first application of the Lord's Prayer is, are you a forgiver? Or are you someone who hangs on to offenses? Hearts that are willing to forgive are transformed and are forgiven. Don't read verse 14 as a conditional verse. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's conditional in the sense of it's a cause and effect, but it's not that you're earning something with God. You're not earning favor with God. It's that functionally, if you forgive people, then that means God will forgive you. That means you are forgiven. But if you will not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is faith without works is dead language. If you don't have the... the the work of forgiveness where the heart is love-dubbing and it's alive spiritually and you forgive, if that doesn't happen, if that's not happening, you're dead. That's the issue. James 2 says, even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have knowledge. The demons know things. They know about forgiveness. They know about Jesus. Legion knew Jesus when Jesus confronted Legion and cast them into the swine. There's knowledge there, but they weren't alive. They weren't going to heaven. Heaven's hearts are forgiving hearts. Hell's hearts are those that are stone, that have to fake forgiveness, fake pray, fake give, fake fast. None of that's true. None of that's real. All of that is damnable. And I want to just say it takes a hard statement to get the band-aid off, right? To expose the sore that needs to be treated. The hypocrites that were listening to this needed to hear that their reward was being stripped from them. They thought they had the reward of heaven. They thought they had heaven. They had the assurance of their salvation. A lot of boys and girls sit in church and they go, I know I'm saved. My parents are saved. I've prayed the prayer. I'm fine. A lot of adults sit there and they go, look, I'm doing a good job. Leave me alone. And what you need is some, you need the word of God to rip off the bandage so you can see what's really going on. Christians acting like hypocrites are bad enough, but those who are self-deceived, who think that they are Christians and are hypocrites, need to hear this all the more. Jesus is the scandal on here. He's the stumbling block. He's letting go of any popularity. The crowds are listening, but he won't be popular for long. Jesus is the stumbling block. Matthew 21, 44, the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's crushing people with these words. He's the cornerstone, but he's the stone that the builders rejected. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Our message is offensive. Be not deceived. To call people to let go of grudges is really getting into people's business. But what's at stake is your own forgiveness before the Lord You know, if you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation, it very well could be that it's because you're hanging on to an offense. If you're struggling with whether or not you're happy in the Lord, it could be that you're hanging on to an offense. The joy and the freedom of knowing Christ comes from knowing that you've been forgiven. And because we've been forgiven, we forgive. It just flows. It just happens in the Christian life. We we forgive 
and you walk in forgiveness. Well, this is a hard statement, is it not? There's some other ones that are hard, and I want to just list through a few. This is what's been called the gospel according to Jesus. This is the true gospel. It's following Jesus, where it's Jesus, all I have is you. And if others follow, then they'll be with me, but I'm going to follow Jesus at all costs. Matthew 8, 19 to 22, scribe came up, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. How cruel does that sound? Well, it sounds very cruel if you don't understand that this is Jesus, your creator, your all-satisfying God that is calling you to follow him. If Jesus is saying, look, do it this way, follow me this way, then we do that. We don't get to make the rules. We follow the Lord. Now, again, obviously we harmonize scripture. We're supposed to take care of our family. We're supposed to grieve our parents. We're supposed to do right, but not at the expense of following Christ. The Lord at times calls us to do things that look unrealistic to the watching world around us. Luke, Luke 9, 57, he repeats this same. He ends by saying in Luke chapter 9, 61, I will, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Obviously, there was some sin here where someone was saying, I'm going to fake. I'm going to half follow you, but I'm also going to give attention to my parents. I'm going to half follow you, but I need to go first do this. This is a little bit like parenting where I'm saying, hey, clean the kitchen. My kids aren't in the room, so I can say this, you know, do this, do that. And they say, oh, dad, I'll do it. I'll do it. But let me first finish this. Let me first finish that. That kind of ambivalence is not just for a child to a parent. It's in anyone's heart who's saying, I'm half committed to Jesus. Half committed to Jesus is not commitment to Jesus. Do you get that? Full commitment to Jesus is what is required by Jesus. Not by Anchorage Grace Church, not by me, by Jesus. He requires full commitment. Follow me. That's being a Christian. Forgive everyone. That's being a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. Luke 10, or Matthew 10, 25, is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, meaning satanic, how much more will they malign those of his own household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We fear God. We fear Christ. Matthew 10, 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my fathers in heaven. We are acknowledgers. We don't want to be doing what Peter did, right? Who denied Christ three times. We want to be complete, wholesale, fully um, committed followers. Listen to this, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my fathers in heaven. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more more, more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What does this mean? Conflict comes into the home. You follow Christ and it, it's a dividing line in homes. Not all the time. We don't pray for this. We don't wish for this. But we need to not be surprised that if we are wholesale committed to Christ, if Christ has changed our lives, that some people are in with that and some people are out with that. So you can't have it both ways. Jesus is saying, it's my way. And when the Lord brings deliverance within your home and people come to Christ and kids come to Christ or a spouse comes to Christ, it's amazing. But it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. And Jesus is saying, follow me at all costs. What does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow? When Jesus said that you were to do this in Matthew chapter 16, 24, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. He meant be willing to forfeit your life because you're not going to want to forfeit your soul. Wholesale commitment to Christ. It's all in for Christ. Peter was saying, oh no, Lord, forbid it that you would ever go to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That's satanic. It's full commitment. And not only am I going to the cross, I'm calling you to be willing to go to the cross. And many of his disciples in that day did. Many did. We follow Christ. We're willing to, Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, if you're living for your own life like this, you'll lose it. Whoever loses his life is open-handed to the Lord for my sake. We'll find it. We'll find it. This is, this is what the gospel according to Jesus is. The rich young ruler, he wanted to keep all the commandments of the law, Matthew 19. Um, and Jesus listed the different Ten Commandments. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What is this? Does, is this some sort of work salvation? Sell everything and then you automatically get heaven? Sell your treasure here and that will buy you treasure in heaven? No, this was revealing this man's heart. He was hanging on to his worldly possessions like this. Is it wrong to have things? No. Is it wrong to provide for your family? No. Is it wrong to be a saver and investor? No. But if you're living for your investments like this, if you're worried about it all the time, if you're worried about what's going to happen to you all the time, if you're, if you're making decisions where you can't give any to anyone ever all the time, that's not a good state of heart to be in. We're givers. We're forgivers. So sell everything. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, sell, give to the poor, follow me. When the, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We don't want to be like that. We know that we've been forgiven dramatically. And that's why we forgive. That's why we live for Christ. Now, I want to bring up, I've got a few minutes remaining. It's a big story. I want you to buckle up and dial in because... I love this story, and we're going to go through it, but it's awesome. It's, I think, the most dramatic scene in all of Scripture of a reconciled relationship. And you might be sitting here going, okay, I'm for Jesus. I'm all for Jesus. I'm going to follow him no matter what. But if you're talking about reconciling with someone and forgiving someone, that's really tough stuff. And it is. It's a, hard, it's a high bar to forgive people who've hurt you deeply, 
who've crossed the line. It's very high to actually go there and try to seek reconciliation. But I want to tell you a story from Scripture that I think is the best example of reconciliation that I could possibly find. Um, do you remember the, the verse in Romans 9 that says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? I mean, could you be more polarized in terms of a perspective on two people? Do you know that those two people in the Bible actually get back together? They're separated, they're severed because of calamity and because of deception and because of deceit, because of privilege, because of um, favoritism in the home. They are destroyed and God puts them back together again. I want to tell you that story as a way of encouragement for you to see that God can restore relationships and he calls us to be forgivers. You remember in Genesis, Genesis 25 verse 24, I'd invite you to look there. It says, when her days, this is Rebecca, to give birth were completed. Behold, there were twins in her womb and she, the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him, his name, Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means heel grabber. It also means the cheater. Isaac was 60 years old when she, Rebekah, bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, two things in that verse that are going to be themes through this narrative, through this story. Number one, favoritism. Favoring one child over another. One parent loved one, the other parent loved the other. Destroys households, destroys families, really bad sin, really high hurdles to get over later on. Number two is the lust of the flesh that is uh, personified in lusting for food. This is the red stew. This is savory meat. This is the lust for instant gratification. So favoritism and lustful instant gratification, those two sins destroy and they are seen as destroying this household. Verse 29, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Where is this coming from? I'm telling you, this was parental favoritism being passed down. It's one-upsmanship. Jacob's looking for an angle to steal the, the executor status of the estate. That's what he's doing. He's number two. Jacob's number one. Jacob, or Esau's the firstborn. He's number one. He's in charge of, of the birthright, which means he owns rights and privileges to the will, to where everything will go within the family. And Jacob is swooping in at a life and death moment with Esau. Esau is saying, I'm starved to death. And that's not just I was hungry and you know missed a meal. He is famished. He's coming back from a hunt. And he's in need of food out of desperation. Within this desperation, um, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and ate and drank and rose and went away. And Esau despised his birthright. He said, just fine, fine with it. But you know, in family situations, when somebody dies and somebody is pronounced the executor of the estate, that there's all kinds of sins that, that 
bubble to the surface. People want things. People are envious. People are jealous. People are looking for family heirlooms. People are thinking through which parent favored them. All those sins are are alive and and real, and that's what's bound up in the birthright um, dynamic. I think it's important to understand that. Um, Chapter 27, you kind of fast forward to a time when Isaac is near to death. His eyes are dim. He's basically blind. He can't see um, who's, talk, who's talking to him. He has to recognize the voice. He's feeling to understand who's before him. It says, verse 1, Isaac was old, could not see. His eyes were dim. He called Esau's older son to him. He said, my son. He answered here, I am. Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt for game. Verse 4, and prepare for me a delicious delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat. My soul may bless you before I die. I think this, he's actually saying, I'm in the flesh. I want food, and I want to get into a good mood by the food so I can bless you. It's comfort in old age. It's what he's looking for. Now, Rebecca was listening. She's disenfranchised from her husband at this point. They're disconnected. She's wanting to pull something here for the one that she loves, which is Jacob. She's listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when, so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me a delicious food that I may eat and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats. It's like it's as if Rebecca is the serpent in, in the garden at this point. Listen to my command. Listen to what I want you to do so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. You know the word, this is like lust, and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is hair, a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And she says, let the curse be on me. I got this. Follow my voice. Follow what I want to do. Follow the sin of privilege and the sin of looking to Jacob as better then he saw it's terrible. So she, um, so he went, verse 14, brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food. Then Rebekah, verse 15, took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on the hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious, delicious food and the bread, um, which she prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so... Now you have the, the dynamic of voices that, that Isaac is hearing. Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn, and I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? This is the delusion of a father falling into sins, being willing to be self-deceived. He knows this is Jacob, but he's giving over in the moment. As if he's falling asleep on it. Because the Lord your God granted me success. I mean, this is again the lie of Jacob. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are 
really my son Esau or not. He wants to lie to himself. He wants to convince himself, Isaac does, that this is Esau, not Jacob. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. You just go down, you see the blessing. Verse 27, came near, kissed him, Isaac, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. See, the smell of my son is the smell of the field. He's allowing himself to be seduced and bless him, and the Lord is blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let Peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down before you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, this is an important piece of the puzzle. You have a birthright that's already been taken by Jacob. Now this is the blessing. The blessing is tying into the believing line that would be part of God's lineage from Abraham all the way to the Lord Jesus. This is the lineage of faith. So when in Romans 9, Paul is quoting that verse, Jacob I loved and Esau I have hated, it's not double predestination. God is not pronouncing hate on Esau at birth. He's talking about Jacob's line. He loves the line of Jacob because this is the line of believers where God created a great nation versus the line of unbelievers or pagans that came through Esau. You remember Sarah, Abraham, and Abraham um, took Ishmael and created that line. And Esau actually ended up marrying into that line just to, to seal his fate in that line of paganism and unbelief versus Jacob, who lied and God gave grace and blessed Jacob nevertheless. And Jacob is the line of faith. And so that's, this is an irrevocable promise. And Esau knew that and begged for the blessing. He begged for this to be reversed. But even though Isaac is saying in verse 38, Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now, verse 41 is key, because this is Esau's state of heart. He's lost the physical blessing and inheritance, and now he's lost the spiritual blessing that he knew would be from God through his father. It says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, mom, Rebecca, is catching up on all of this and... She's understanding that her sins of deception and her sins of um, privilege and are making this very dangerous for Jacob. And so she sends Jacob away. She says, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Haran was on the way. It's, it's been said to be a modern day Iran, but it's, it was on the way from Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham or Abram was in Haran at that place. Go to that pagan land. 
go there to my brother Laban. Even though he's a pagan, she sends him there. Um, If you read through the chapters um, in between the narrative here, you see that he had idols. Haran was, was a bad guy. This is where... Jacob finds his wife, Rachel. He loves her. He loves her beauty. He finds her at Jacob's well but uh, and promises that it'll work seven years to achieve marriage under Laban. And, and Laban puts him to work. And it says in the narrative, the seven years passed like seven days. And then he went to be with his wife. And um, um, Laban did the switcheroo and, and put um, Leah in there instead of Rachel. So he ended up being married to Leah and then uh, is heartbroken and six days later he's able to marry Rachel, but then works seven more years. Why is this germane to the story? It's actually building the timeline between Jacob's departure from Esau, which you have seven years of hard labor, and then he works seven more years of hard labor to seal the deal that he's married to both women, Leah and Rachel, and then you have six more years where he's working in the fields um, to build credibility around being a shepherd. All of this is documented to say 20 years have passed. 20 years have passed. If you're looking that up, it's Genesis 31 Verse 38, these 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. So um, he runs into trouble because Laban begins to um, come after him. They have to flee Laban. And then it comes to chapter 32 where Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. So now he's out. He's pushed out in the providence of God where he's right to the point where he's going to meet back up with Esau. And guess what? It's been 20 years, but... Jacob's terrified. Now, I've known men who are leaders, who are business owners, company owners, who, you know, have all kinds of resources, have all kinds of positions of power and authority, people who are, you know, full-up athletes or soldiers or whomever, who are terrified of engaging or re-engaging with broken relationships within family. Can I get a witness? Am I just, am I just talking into the air? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's meant to be that way. This is a picture of reconciliation. Even a believer with probably a pagan brother, but there is reconciliation. We are those who are best equipped by the gospel of grace to actually open our hands and forgive people. Where these are insurmountable, unfixable situations that that we all live within. Where we go, there's no way that there could ever be reconciliation. But here's an example of true reconciliation where a birthright had been taken and the blessing of life had been taken. And now here's an opportunity for a re-engagement. Jacob sent messengers to Esau. He's, he's, he's terrified about this re-encounter. With him, verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob. We came to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He ended up dividing his camp into two people groups. In case Esau wanted to slaughter one of them, one would get away. 
So he's split in two. And what Jacob does is amazing. And I would encourage you to take this to heart. This is an Old Testament version of a Christian man who's falling on his face before God and clinging to gospel grace to get through this family moment. Listen to what he says. I am verse 10. He's praying. I am not worthy. Or verse nine. Oh, God, my father, Abraham and God, the father, God of my father, Isaac. Oh, Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of here's the word hesed, steadfast love. This is the Old Testament word for grace. I'm not worthy of grace and all the faithfulness that you've shown your servant. He goes, he says, verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He's going to destroy everything. He's going to attack me. There's no way I'm going to win. And he appeals ultimately to the covenant of God. He says, and you said, I will surely do you good and make your offering as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. In other words, you've made this promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to me that you're going to multiply a great nation through me. So I can't die, right? This can't go wrong, right? Because I'm trusting in the gospel of grace, right? Your hesed, covenant faithfulness, your commitment to me, right? That's how we pray in these situations. And this is the desperation of Jacob. And so Jacob, he sends um, his goats, he sends ewes, he sends rams, he sends milking camels and calves and 40 calves and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys. He's passing them ahead. He's sending them ahead as an offering, saying, send them as a present. Verse 18, they are a present sent from my Lord to my Lord Esau. He's paying homage to Esau, wanting it to be right wanting to be accepted. And so in verses 22 through 32, there's an interlude where that night Jacob wrestles with someone who I think is the prefigured Christ, a Christophany, wrestles all night. It's called PL because he saw the face of God. His hip was put out of alignment. The sinew was broken. He had a limp forever, but he wrestled with God and God reassured him that he was with him through this very difficult time. Verse 30, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. So I've been through that. And so I'm ready to face my brother Verse 1, and Jacob lifted up his eyes, chapter 33, and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. So he, saw, he met with God, saw God's face, then he's seeing Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants and put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. I love this. I know I'm embellishing this story, but it's awesome. It's getting better the more I tell it. Um, It's seven times he's bowing in formality. Three, four, five, six, seven. Look what Esau does. Esau was ready. He didn't come running to kill him. He came running to forgive him. Look at verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. 
even is using different language there because he doesn't want to reference back to the blessing that was pronounced on him by Isaac. Saying, these are the children. Esau didn't care. Who are these kids? Who are these babies? I want to see them. Then the servants drew near and they and their children bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. That lowercase, this is talking about Esau. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. All these gifts, just keep it. And Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. It says heaven on earth. Reconciliation. True forgiveness. We have been forgiven, so we forgive. And when you forgive, you can experience blessing like these. Please accept My blessing that is brought to you, this word blessing, I think is different from the pronounced blessing on him. And he's just trying to use language to be careful to say, I know I can't undo the birthright. I know that I can't undo the blessing of God on my life, but I'm trying to make restitution. Please accept the blessing because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. And Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. Ultimately, what's described here is that Jacob, he had his limp. He knew his children were frail. His, uh, his livestock was frail. He knew that if he drove the livestock hard at that moment at Esau's pace, everybody would die. That's just a picture of how frail Jacob had had been brought to and had conceded to. He wasn't going to fight Esau. He was going to willingly yield either to death or to reconciliation. That's the posture that we can take as a Christian. When we are weak, we are strong. When you forgive, you're just, I forgive you. I'm weak. I'm letting the shields down. Shields are down. Christ has forgiven me. He's my all. I'm a true follower of Christ. And so I forgive. I let things go. That's the joy of forgiveness. That's the blessing of the gospel. This is the beauty of the story. And Esau said, verse 15, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Let me leave some people with you. This is reconciliation. He said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sierra, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. This is a beautiful story. It's a reconciliation that we have with one another.